I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Manveer Singh Diltskartra, also known as Manny. Manny is a 29-year-old fourth-year medical student, powerlifter, and rational thinker. In this cerebral conversation, we discuss the tenets of the Sikh faith, the great waste of human potential through procrastination, and the benefits of competition toward the next steps for humanity. Before we talk more about Manny and this awesome conversation, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. Uh, you can find that them at mnmwad.com. That's Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day, mnmwod.com. There you'll find my weekly long-form reflections on my time in medical school from the very first anatomy lab to now. And this on July 23rd, I published On a Long Week or Halfway Through Internal Medicine. This week, I reflected on a long week. I held one family meeting, an end-of-life discussion, and received some heartening feedback. Then I looked forward to the change back to outpatient medicine, rotating first with the emergency department. Then, on July 30th, I published On Change, or The Lack Thereof. This week, I reflected on change through two stories, one slam dunk and one missed opportunity. Sometimes a shock to the system is the best medicine to stimulate change and new behaviors. Perhaps this was mine. And you can also find them in your news feed, or in your um, podcast feed, uh, because I've been publishing those a little irregularly, not every week, but I publish the, the written form every week, but I, I, I'm getting a little lazy about the actual recording of it, so um, you know, you, you, we've been doing that with the release of the actual interviews, the on-death interviews, so I hope you don't mind too much, I'm a busy medical student, uh, and uh, I got stuff to do. So uh, this this interview with Manny, uh, Manbeer, was really great. We've had, uh, we had a a really heady conversation uh, about a week ago, um, and I think we referenced it in the in the interview. But um, it's it was it was a great exploration of ideas and uh, morality. And um, then I wanted to sit down with him and have the this interview for the podcast because uh, I like I I I know that uh, giving him the space for for the interview and and the space for silence too, uh, which is something that is hard in, in like an active conversation or uh, like almost a debate. Um, I really appreciated this conversation because uh, I could give him the space and let him kind of go off and do and, and verbally just explain things the way that uh, in, in the way that he needed to. And uh, we I came we came to a much better understanding this time around than we did last week. And it's a really good conversation. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We talk about uh, we talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, we talk about the next steps for humanity. We talk about uh, what does it mean to be a human versus what does it mean to be uh, an animal. And it's really great, really good stuff. And uh, I'm really glad that I was able to record this conversation and bring it to you, the audience, because I think you'll like it. Um, Manny's an interesting, an interesting cat, and uh, he's uh, he's going to do some really interesting things with his medical career. And I hope that he continues his his um, thought experiments and his philosophizing and and all of that because it's um, it's an important aspect to um, a human to be able to think and to to opine about 
uh, our state and, and our next steps uh, in our next states. Um, so I hope that you uh, have already started boiling water, you already got some, some beverage going, a beverage of your choice, and you are ready for a lovely conversation with Manny on death. It is August 3rd, 2017. I'm sitting here in Manny's lovely Brennigsville apartment. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Manny, what are the four prompts? I am. Before I die, I want. When I die, I want. After I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? Hopeful. Hopeful for what? I'm hopeful that the world is moving in the right direction, that things are getting better, and that the future, the near future, is bright, and that the far future is, I mean, with that analogy, blinding. <laughs> is there, um, is, are you always hopeful? Yeah. I'd say so. Doesn't always come across that way. <laughs> um, but I think fundamentally, I'm probably, I tend to have a more positive outlook on the world as it is today than a lot of the people I interact with. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it stems from the fact that I've, you know, I've read that the media tends to over-report negative news. And so I've kind of internalized the belief that things are actually a lot more positive than what we see. And I really like to focus on the technological advancements that we're making and the overall fact that if you look at history, if you look at the fact that, you know, we're only, that's 20... 2018 right now we're about 40 years past or maybe a little bit longer past the time in, in the world's history where people were legitimately worried that the world would end any day you know nuclear holocaust was a real and uh, mm -hmm. you know a real existential threat and people don't think about that right we talk about how the world's going to shit and I'm like Guys, literally the world almost ended in our parents' generation's time. And now we're living in an era where we're talking about possibly colonizing Mars. Mm -hmm. I feel like things are going pretty dang well. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a Oppenheimer quote that um, the Holocaust tells us what humans can do to each other. And the atomic bomb tells us what's at stake. And, uh, yeah, it's, like, you think, like, I, grow, I can't imagine what it was like to grow up under the Cold War. Like, it's, it's, it's like that blanket of fear, like, compared, to, like, yeah, we, I was in, like, sixth or seventh, like, third or, yeah, sixth or seventh grade when, like, 9-11 happened. And that was, like, a really crazy thing for, like, at least five to ten years. But, like, now, like, in the 20, in the 2010s, it's, like, a, this is a really, like, totally different lifestyle than anyone could have predicted back during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Where do you, where does that, 
uh, where where does that like did you have uh, like role models for the, this hopefulness and what maintains this hopefulness within you hmm. to answer your first question no I didn't have any role models for this hopefulness what maintains this hopefulness let me think for So I believe fundamentally that competition drives progress mm -hmm. and even when things seem dire for one country or one society, it represents opportunity for another. So, to give you an example, people worry about the collapse of the American empire, right? About American social institutions um, becoming retrograde, us moving away from, you know, improving healthcare, us moving away from environmental protection, um, us moving away from global stewardship and that makes people worried and depressed I mean I hear it when I talk to people in the clinic I, I hear it from my you know peers and my colleagues but at the same time there are other nations that capitalize on the vacuums that are created right so China, India, they're both investing heavily in renewable energy resources. Um, despite the fact that NASA's funding has been fairly poor, private companies are picking up the slack for space exploration. Um, those are just a couple of examples of, of where if you create this vacuum, people will fill it. And the reason why is that it's not because of some like intrinsic motivator to be good. It's because of the fact that those policies have like a, an advantage, like a survival advantage. So countries that have universal health care have healthier populations. Countries that have good uh, social support systems on in the aggregate tend to do better be more successful have a healthier population be more stable and so they are able then to outcompete the countries that don't have those strong social institutions and so even though things can go backwards for short periods of time in the long run good policy translates to um, global success you tend to get a, get ahead of the game in the long run if your country tends to have policies that are uh, promoting you know the well-being of its citizens 
sort of like a um, like a forest fire is catastrophic in the short term, but ultimately will lead lead to more uh, biomass than what was already there. Maybe or sort of like people think of the fall of Rome mm-hmm. and the barbarians sacking it. What they don't realize is that part of the reason the barbarians were able to sack it is because of the fact that they weren't barbarians anymore. They had learned from the Romans. They had picked up language and science and, um, maybe not science in the modern sense, but technology and... uh, Like metalworking, metallurgy. And tactics, Mm -hmm. right? There was a transfer of knowledge such that even when Rome fell, it's not like the world went into darkness. Mm -hmm. It just got replaced by a new power like a new um, I wouldn't say nation state but a new structure structure mm-hmm. right and we've continued to progress so even when what we think of as ideal um, we think of as ideal social structures or, or societies fail they aren't existing in an isolated vacuum. There's a lot of other countries, a lot of other parts of the world where progress is still occurring. I mean, people talk about the Dark Ages, right? In the in the mm-hmm. um, in 15s Europe, fifteens and fourteens, right? But the Dark Ages in Europe coincided with the Golden Age for the Middle East. Mm. Right? So science and technology and medicine and mathematics was thriving in the Middle East, even when you know Europe was going backwards mm-hmm. so people don't, and then today right we're kind of in maybe the dark ages for the middle late for the middle east today you know because they're going through a lot of conflict and a lot of uh, social upheaval but you know who knows where they're going to be a hundred years from now and where we're going to be a hundred years from now mm-hmm. but my point is we're always progressing forward and from what i've seen things have always gotten better so i mean if you see the sun rise every day it's a fairly good assumption to make that the sun will rise tomorrow. And if we see that humanity has continued to get more and more advanced and progress as a, you know, as a whole, then it makes sense to be, to expect it to continue to do so. So you're hopeful. So I'm hopeful. What else are you? I'm searching for an answer. Is uh, is the answer something that you'll be able to find? Maybe. So, 
the way I see it, we aren't progressing as fast as we could be. And the thing that's holding us back is us. The question I'm searching for an answer for is, what's the best way to get people to cooperate and to realize that they share the same goals? And I don't mean that on the, on the micro level. I'm talking about large-scale policy, social change level. How do you engage hundreds of thousands or millions of people? How do you change their outlook on life? What have you come up with so far? So I believe that people are inherently rational. That's one of the fundamental kind of defining qualities of what it means to be human. Now, a lot of people would disagree with that statement. They would be like, people aren't rational. If you just look at society, people aren't rational. But I would say on a day-to-day -day basis, people make a lot of logical decisions all the time in order to be able to survive and, and take care of themselves and their families. Where the disconnect happens is rationality or logic only exists relative to a goal. And people don't always know what their goal is. They might know what their goal is in the short term, in the day to day, but they haven't always figured out what the goal is in a larger time scale. If you can convince enough people or, or show enough people what their goal could be, what their goal, and I'll make a statement, what their goal ought to be, then I think you have a better chance of getting them to cooperate if they're working towards something, if they have something to be rational about. And um, it's it's really like this this idea of showing millions of people around the world and convincing them and showing them what they ought to be searching or aiming towards is something that is a conversation that really could have only happened within the past like twenty years with the advent of of this global communications network of the internet. Is do you see that as like a a powerful leverage point for it or do you think it's something that's separate or do you think it's kind of in between um that's a challenging question i mean even before the internet we've had the means to to have billions of people share a common ideology i mean religion is a perfect example of that mm -hmm. it's slow it's sort of slow but if you think about how many people it's involving it's not that slow i mean in in 50 years theology can change significantly mm -hmm. in a few hundred years you've seen vast shifts in human thought on a mass scale and it's kind of i think that's fairly impressive mm -hmm. um 
But as far as the internet's concerned, it's it's hard to say whether it's advantageous or not in terms of being able to spread ideas quickly, and I'll explain why. Because on the, on the face of it, it's like a no-brainer. You're like, yeah, obviously the internet's going to speed things up. Everybody has access to it, and and you can get information. One individual can spread information to millions uh, without any significant cost. That's kind of the on the face of it. But then the reality of it is there are so many voices on the internet, so many people making so many statements that any one thought or idea has a hard time standing out amid the noise. This is true. And even though the internet sort of democratizes thought, at the end of the day, the same old principles still apply in the sense that the biggest spenders still tend to get their message out the widest and to the most people. Mm -hmm. So it's awash, I don't know. The potential exists, mm -hmm. but realizing it is not necessarily a sure thing. Yeah, it is still very much in an infancy stage. Do you know what it will feel like to have found that answer? Like, will, when, like, you're searching for it now. Right. But do you, can you, can you even imagine that binary shift from searching for the answer to finding and have found the answer? So I don't know that... I will find the answer in my lifetime. But before I die, I want to at least get the ball rolling. Engage enough people, convince enough people of what I see my vision as, that they can then continue to then engage others. And so the way I've been doing that is just trying to meet as many like-minded people as I can. Trying to, and, and the thing is, I haven't, I haven't settled on what the message needs to be. So what the, what the shared purpose ought to be. But I feel like I'm close. And I feel like if I talk to the right people, talk to enough of the right people, you know, smart, intelligent, thoughtful people, together we can come up with something that feels true and that we can then focus on spreading that message so I guess before I die I want to make sure that I establish some kind of institution or pathway for maintaining this process and then have others be able to continue it Sort of like uh, being like the first part of the branch and like letting other people take it from there. Right, although I don't think I'm the first. I feel like the things that I believe I have come to because of the things that I've read, because of the people that I've listened to mm -hmm. in my lifetime. Now, I don't know of any specific 
I don't think there's any specific book that I read or any specific individual that I listened to that convinced me, but it's more of, of the accumulation of all the things that I've that I've uh, heard and seen throughout my life so far. Do you know who you would be giving that ball to, or like that? Who who would be continuing it for you? Would it be um, would it be like uh, mentees, like people that you mentor? Would it be like a family or blood? Um, would it be uh, like strangers that you've never met before and you don't you can't even imagine what their relationship is, what your relationship would be like, or people that you probably will never meet? All of the above. So, you know, I, I share these ideas with my friends. Um, I've shared it with my spouse. I intend on sharing it with my children. My hope is um, to write a book at some point, to put everything down on paper so that it's available if anybody wants to come across it. And, and if it resonates with people, it resonates with me, so I hope that it resonates with others, that they can then you know, adopt it and, and add to it and, and, and spread it. The easiest and hardest way I've heard to write a book is to write a book that you would want to read. It's easiest because you want to read it. You want stuff you're passionate about. And the hardest part is that you are, you got the critical eye. You're like, this is just not quite exactly what I want. So it's a, it's a tough process of that kind of creation of something so close to the heart. Right. Did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood? Yeah. I grew up in a very conservative religious family. Um, I was baptized as a Sikh at the age of 13. Um, so it was a, I would say religion played a, a huge part in my upbringing. Is it... I'm not familiar beyond some of the, the very basic tenets of Sikhism. Is it uh, common to be baptized at the age of 13? Is that... No, so the way Sikhism works is it's strongly discouraged to baptize anyone who's too young to understand what they're doing. Mm. And so baptism is supposed to be volitional, whenever one feels ready for it and proselytizing is for the most part frowned upon in Sikhism it's not something that's normally done I've never seen anybody proselytize in my life it's supposed to grow organically and the idea is that Sikhs are supposed to set an example that others would then want to follow mm. And what is your relationship with Sikhism now? So, I don't believe in the, the superstitious aspects of the religion, but I still see a lot of value in the fundamental tenets of the faith. So, Sikhism boils down to kind of two very broad principles. One is that you should lead a life of service to others and that's a core component of Sikhism. In fact, it's probably the 
fundamental tenet of Sikhism is that you should lead a life and so dedicated to service of others. And then the other is that you should protect those who cannot protect themselves. Mm. And so the way I translate that is, you know, A, I'm practicing medicine as a form of service to others. And I tend to support initiatives that help those in need. For example, I'm a strong proponent of the idea of universal health care because I believe that everyone should have access and those who need it the most should be able to get it. We talked, you mentioned briefly about your spouse and future children. Mm-hmm. Is Sikhism something that you would want to have as a part of their upbringing? I think I would teach them the principles of Sikhism, but not necessarily the the superstition of it. What are some of those, because I'm totally unfamiliar with them, what are some of the superstitious aspects that um, you disagree with and what are some that you might think that have benefit? So, the... So Sikhism believes in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. So the, the way it works is that human beings go through, or, or souls go through, you know, 800,000 different, um, I'm sorry, I might be wrong in that, might be 8.6 million different lives, different organisms, before they come back to being human. Oh, and so all of eternity consists of people going through these cycles, going through all the lives, and if they, and then, and then they get the chance to be human. And only when you're human can you worship God. Oh, interesting. Right. And so the idea is that when you're human, mm-hmm. you have an opportunity to escape the cycle of birth and death. Mm -hmm. And so existence is seen as a form of hell. Oh, that's a very interesting conclusion. Right, and so the the purpose of a pious religious life in Sikhism Mm -hmm. is that if you are good enough, if you have lived a virtuous enough life to atone for any sins that you might have committed in prior lives, Mm -hmm. then God grants you, in essence, non-existence. And so you... The way they describe it is the soul is like a drop of water and God is like the ocean. Mm -hmm. And if you have led a good life, the drop is allowed to return to the ocean. And the way I see that, and I, I would challenge anyone to see it differently, is you cease being an individual. You return to being part of the collective, the whole. Mm. So it's like as you live, as a life as a human is like the one in eight point six million chances. Like you, you're like you're kind of like 
this is your you were waiting in this really long queue mm-hmm. to then finally get back to being human and this is your one like your one in one eight point six million shot to get out of this get out of the queue basically yeah. and the queue is considered to be a long cycle of suffering as you go through all the lives all the pains of hunger and you know all the other things that living beings face the struggles of life mm. and your only chance to get out of it is when you're human are there are there like um, mythological stories associated with Sikhism like with with particular characters or like deities um, so Sikhism will occasionally have so the Sikh holy text will occasionally have stories um, that have Hindu deities in them Oh, interesting. But that's because there are a lot of, of Hindus who have contributed to the holy text. Um, but they tend to be uh, educational, like, uh, I guess, metaphorical stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like parables more. Than exactly. Most Sikhs would, would probably say that the text isn't literally saying that you should believe in the Hindu deities so much as it's just phrasing things in a story format that would make sense to the majority of people who would be following the religion rather than talking about it totally abstractly all the time exactly I see and uh, la- last uh, question I'll ask about it is uh, what is like what is the history of the contributions and the, and the, the, the makeup of the Sikh holy text like what's it called is it has it been revised is it because I know like in contrast with for say like the Bible which is sort of like the Old Testament is the Old Testament and the New Testament is the New Testament and it's sort of been like kind of like it's supposed to just be that and there are no alterations allowed right so the the Sikh holy text is called the Siri Guru Granth Sahib Siri is a a respectful adjective Mm -hmm. Guru means teacher Granth is the name of the text itself, and Sahib is another respectful adjective. Um, and it was compiled uh, throughout the history of Sikhism. So Sikhism's had uh, ten gurus who contributed to the text, and the last guru said that your next guru is now this compendium of knowledge oh. that we've written down. There will be no more living gurus. And so that's how Sikhs now follow the Siddhi Guru Granth Sahib. They see it as their, as their guru. Interesting. Um, and when did he die? That's a good question. Let's see. Um, like this century or like way before that? Way before, I think... So the Khalsa was founded in 1699, and Sikhism itself was founded in 1499. Oh, gotcha. Um, so I think somewhere around 1699, around that era, is when the Interesting. text was finished. So before you die, you want to see this ball rolling. Mm-hmm. You want to uh, ensure that it will continue on after you. What else do you want? What else do I want before I die? Mm-hmm. What do you want to start talking about when you die? I mean, before I die, there's a million things I could want. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're going to be achieved, but, mm-hmm. you know, 
I mean, if I just wanted to state a wish list. Maybe if you want. What's on the wish list? Is it seeing things? Is it doing things? Oh gosh, things? no, no. I want to see humanity advance to the next step. What is the next step? Is it the answer that you're looking for? No, the answer is more how to convince people. Okay, okay. The next step is... Once they're convinced in doing it. Yeah, that's just to accelerate things. Okay. Even if you never manage to convince people, once we achieve the next step, it won't matter. Okay. And the next step is something I see as inevitable, mostly because competition is what drives it. The way I see people is a duality of the human being and what makes a human a human is the rational thinking mind. That's what separates us from all other beings on this planet. And then the other part of that duality is the animal mind that we're chained to. So we do a lot of things that are counterproductive, that hurt us, that hurt ourselves, right? So the xenophobic tendencies that we tend to have, the tribalism that we often exhibit, the, you know, the uncontrolled hedonism that we often exhibit, sometimes to the detriment of more beneficial activities, that's all a product of our animal brain. Right? A lot of what we've built and a lot of the philosophies that we've created is a testament to the humanity within all of us. But we are still held back by our more primitive natures. The next step that I see is divesting ourselves of that animal component. So getting to the stage where we are purely human, just rational creatures. Once we achieve that step, I expect that our rate of progress will increase you know, exponentially. And the reason I think it's inevitable is because of the fact that competition is what will drive it. Right. So if one country comes up with, you know, smarter children. The other countries have to do the same or they risk falling by the wayside. And as that cycle of modification continues and you have multiple iterations of it, you end up with people who are more and more able to control their thoughts and actions and do what they want to do as opposed to do what they're compelled to do by their mm -hmm. less rational selves so a question that I have for you then is are you saying that because of competition intelligence equals like within the Darwinist like idea of fitness like that will lead to more procreation and more uh, like more uh, passing off of your genetic materials no I should I should have clarified I meant genetic modification Genetic and cybernetic. I see. Okay, okay. And then, 
because I was like thinking of Idiocracy. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of Idiocracy. I was like, I don't. Well, but okay, I get it now. Now we're on the same page. Second. So now my second line of questioning is: Do you? Do you? I guess like, do you apply like a morality to that loss of the animal self of the human? Like, do you think that is an inherently good thing to lose the? Um, animal, monkey, ape part of our brains to become more sapien? Uh, do I see that as an inherently good thing? Yeah. Absolutely. Re- why? Why is that? Because it allows us to be more human. Is, but is, is, that, is that necessarily good? The reason why I ask is because... Uh, like, the idea of, like, you know, like, the classic, like, alien UFO sort of, like, with mm-hmm. a big head, little paunch, no external genitalia, um, big eyes, and, like, little hands. Like, that is sort of, like, plus minus the, the, gen- the, the genetic and cybernetic modifications we're talking about. That's sort of, like, that is sort of, like, that human aspect. Like, losing the ape parts and becoming only, like, a sentient rational intelligent being mm-hmm. that's sort of that's sort of kind of the the direction would you agree yeah is that is i mean i guess i guess what i'm asking is like is that progress necessarily a good thing like is it are aren't there aspects of the um ape part of us as humans currently in our state is isn't that aren't as like do we need to lose all of it? Like, is, is, is it something that we just need to shed sort of, like, the appendix and the pinky toe? Yes. So, I'll give an example. Diabetes mm-hmm. is a huge issue. It's an epidemic mm-hmm. for all the, you know, first world countries. Mm-hmm. And why is it an epidemic? Because simple carbohydrates taste really good. Right. They taste really good. That is an impulse Mm -hmm. that we have left over from a different era. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. a vestigial remnant, but it's in our brains. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's an example of where the rational human brain that knows it shouldn't be having those carbs cannot resist the detrimental influence of the animal brain. Mm-hmm. Imagine a human being who could eat only what he or she wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. Imagine a human being that never procrastinated, that never felt guilty because they never do anything they don't intend to do. Mm-hmm. Not having any desire but the desire they wish. That's what I see as the next step. I, I understand. It's it's hard for me though to, to wholeheartedly accept it because there are so many aspects of the weird, squishy, gross, like filled with all these weird fluids, human part. Mm-hmm. that are such a beautiful aspect of being a human in 2017. Like, the, the ability to taste, like, the delicious ice cream that Laura gives us, or the ability to lay down and watch 
all of a season of Netflix. Like there's some, there's, it's not, it's not, I agree. And, and within, within your con, within the construct of, of the, the, like doing what is good for all of us, not totally not in line with that. But those things are such a, such a, like the, they're, 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 they're like what separates our experience of life from a really dexterous and intelligent, like, insect. You know? Maybe. I, th- I see where you're kind of coming from in the sense that you perceive this loss of our animal desires as a loss of beauty a loss of meaningful experience. Yes. Uh, yes, that's a very accurate summary. And the contention that I would make is A, there are far better pleasures to be had in the sense that achievement uh you know, philosophical achievement, scientific achievement, um, those types of pleasures are far more meaningful than the sweetness of ice cream or the the bliss of vegging out while watching <laughs> the season of Game of Thrones. Um, that's one component of it. Mm-hmm. The other is that we're biased in our perceptions. An alien coming to Earth might not view our music as beautiful, Mm -hmm. might not view it as anything but strange noises. An alien coming to Earth looking at our paintings may see nothing of awe-inspiring in it. That's because what we see and value is inherently driven by the way our brains are wired. Those things aren't in and of themselves beautiful. They're not in and of themselves awe-inspiring. It's an interplay between the things we create and how our brains are wired. Mm -hmm. And we only find those things beautiful because of what we are. And so if you change what we are, it's not to say you're destroying beauty or you're destroying the ability to perceive beauty. It's just recognizing that the things that we find beautiful or the things that we find delicious mm-hmm. are that way purely out of circumstance. And by being able to modify and change ourselves, we're able to change and modify that which we perceive as beautiful. Absolutely. I understand that. Okay, I can I can kind of get behind it. I don't I don't buy it entirely, but I I I, I see this this is, um, I understand. I dig it. Cool. What else do you want before you die? So what do I have so far? I have trying to find the answer, mm-hmm. getting the ball rolling, seeing humanity advance to the next step. It's a pretty good list of three so far. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's for for me. That's all I really think is possible within my lifetime. There's many, many more things I want, but those are on far grander timescales. <laughs> that, that maybe we can save that for after I die. <laughs> for after I die. All right, let's let's move on to when. How do you finish the prompt? When I die, I want. Ah. Uh, I don't know. When I die, I want. When I die, I want nothing. You want to? Do you want the? What? What do you mean nothing? Do you want the experience? Do Do you have no preference on the experience of transitioning from life to death? Do you? Do you accept kind of however it happens? Yeah, so often I hear the refrain that people want to die peacefully, sometimes in their sleep, mm -hmm. surrounded by family. On the one hand, I understand that, and I, th and I think I want it at some level. If I had an ideal choice it would be yeah pass away surrounded by family and the warmth and comfort of my own bed but the other part of my brain that thinks about it rationally is once i'm dead i'm gone and therefore it doesn't matter if i die in agony it doesn't matter if i die alone it doesn't matter if i die sad or hungry or hurt or happy or warm it doesn't make any difference because the moment i transition from the land of the living to the land of the dead, it effectively, I cease to exist and all my prior experiences cease to be. Mm -hmm. And so I just, it seems odd to me that I would want any kind of special experience before I'm gone. Mm -hmm. I understand. That's very nihilist of you. I don't, I mean, it's like, uh, it's, so it's like, I, I give you a piece of paper and I say draw whatever you want on it, but afterwards I'm going to burn it. And the you can write nothing. You can write uh, your like a love letter. You can write. Um, you can draw. Um, you can draw your own face. You can draw the most beautiful like Mona Lisa of drawing you ever possible. But that doesn't mean that you can't want to draw something, despite the fact that it's going to get burned. Right. I think I think what's important to me is what's left after I'm gone. Mm. And that has more to do with, I, with what I want before I die mm -hmm. and less to do with what I want when I die. So when I think of what I want when I die, I think of the moments surrounding my death. Mm -hmm. Maybe a short while before maybe a short while after and there are two people within me right there's the part of me that is rational and says it doesn't matter and there's obviously the part of me that likes ice cream <laughs> and wants things to be as mm -hmm. pleasant and enjoyable as possible Maybe, maybe what I want 
is to be the, when I die I want to be the kind of person who doesn't care about how I die that's a good one that's a good response follow up question is how will is there a way to know that you are that person until you see death coming at you like right to the face what do you mean like how will you like you want to be the kind of person that doesn't that doesn't care what happens when you die I understand that how will you know when you've become that person is there a way to know that you are that person before it happens because the only real test of like how like are you that person is when you're dying to be totally cool with it right right but I think there's lots of smaller tests along the way such as I mean if you can lead a life where what you want to do rationally and what you want to do hedonistically are aligned Mm -hmm. that's the ideal um, like that's a corollary that's the corollary right so the mm-hmm. idea being that are you leading a life of doing what the human inside you wants to do or are you leading a life of doing what the animal inside you wants to do mm-hmm. now in my own life I know that I'm a good mix of both <laughs> you know I think I do more of the of the pleasure based activities than I would like and you know I often regret that because it ends up being forms of procrastination and if I had to look at my life in terms of potential I feel like I I'm living up to maybe 20% of my overall potential Mm -hmm. if I could apply and I've met people in my life who I have seen them living lives where they are at 80 to 90% of their potential and they are inspiring like you see them and they achieve so much within their lives I think most people have vast amounts of potential there is so much a single human being can achieve if a human being could live a life consistent with their will Mm -hmm. if you could do everything that you willed yourself to do right I mean just being able to perform actions consistent with your rational desires there's almost nothing you couldn't achieve. You know, it's, it's living up to that potential. It's like an every moment. It's like a, it's a, it's like a decision that you make, like moment by moment for your entire life. And every and like every time you don't make that decision, you get a little further away from that hundred percent percent potential, right? Right. And um, it's such a tough. That is such a tough bar to measure yourself against, though, isn't it? Maybe. It depends on how forgiving you are. <laughs> That's true. So, I mean, I feel bad about not living up to my full potential, but then I also tell myself, you know, that's the bargain. I mean, I am what I am. Mm-hmm. doesn't excuse me from trying like I still need to struggle but what's important to me is to try and struggle as much as I can and then at the end of the day 
still being able to tell myself, you did the best you could for what you are. Because, I mean, that's all... And that forgiveness is such, I feel like, an important part of it. And I don't... And, and, and where does... I don't know. Where does that fit into the, like, rational human human aspect of it? Is that, like, is that forgiveness of self, is that something that we'll also need to lose because we won't need it? Because yeah. we'll be... In an ideal world, you shouldn't have to forgive yourself at the end of the day. Right? In an mm-hmm. ideal world, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be in competition with yourself all the time. You shouldn't have to struggle against your own mm-hmm. brain. That's The fact that people aren't more upset about this sometimes <laughs> strikes me as insane. Mm-hmm. We've almost fetishized, and I think we have, we have fundamentally as, as, a, as a society, we have fetishized the idea of the animal brain inside us. We don't think of it as the animal brain, but that part of us that wants to do things for enjoyment or pleasure, mm-hmm. etc. I'm not saying that pleasure and enjoyment are bad things. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that the fact that there's a disconnect between what we want to do Like if I tell myself I want to study medicine with all my free time because I want to be the best doctor I can be, I want to save as many lives as I can, I want to help further the human cause, Mm -hmm. those are the things that I want, I passionately want. Whenever I'm doing something that's not contributing to that, I'm working in antagonism to myself. Mm -hmm. Now sometimes... If I'm reading an article or a philosophical uh, treatise or something, then I feel okay about it. I'm still expanding my my brain and my knowledge mm-hmm. in some regards. But if I'm playing video games, I just can't justify that as being in any way in alignment with what I actually want. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if I could be a being that could always do what I wanted and not have to kind of cajole and negotiate and trying to reach a compromise state with how much I'm able to force myself, will myself, do the things I need to do and want to do, and then have to, you know, spend some time vegging out, procrastinating. If I could be a being that didn't need to do that, that to me would be ideal. Mm -hmm. What I call a fully realized human being, or a human being unshackled from these chains of our primitive past. Mm, Like without the friction. Like all work, no friction. Yeah, well the idea of of freedom. We are all enslaved to this history, to the chains of our past. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think soon, you know, within a generation or two, Mm -hmm. next 50 to 100 years, the first generation of free humans will probably exist. Mm, what a change that'll be. It's not going to be that much of a change. I, I don't mean, think so. I think the rate of progress will increase rapidly. But I've met people who are naturally like that. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I've met more than maybe two people in my lifetime who are <laughs> naturally just... Would you, would you tell me about one of them? Sure. So one of my old, um, my old lab mates, he's a... Now he's a first-year uh, resident. 
but uh, when I was working with him in the lab, he was a second or a third year medical student, and he never procrastinated. <laughs> so, I mean, we would be in the lab for ungodly hours. You know, we'd be there for, I think the longest I was ever in that lab was 23 hours continuous. But, you know, it wasn't uncommon for us to have 100 plus hour weeks. And he was a med student. And so he would come after class, come to the lab, start an experiment, you know, maybe if he had time to finish it, he would, or if he had to go to, if he had to go to, to sleep or something, he would do that. But if we were running an experiment for, let's say, 18 hours, you know, let's say we're going to be there overnight, while the experiment's running, there's a lot of downtime. You know, I might nap, I might go on Facebook for a few minutes, I might chat with people. He would write papers. <laughs> he would come in, he'd be running an experiment, he'd leave, the next day he'd have the paper written up. Being with him in that lab, we got just like three or four publications that year. Is that a lot? I think that's a lot. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, he was so prolific. He just went to school, and then just came to the lab, and just worked. You know, he, I'd never, I never once in the entire, and we spent countless hours together, I never once saw him do anything remotely resembling procrastination. Never saw him on Facebook. Never saw him, you know, looking at, entertainment weekly or whatever never saw him doing any of that mm-hmm. and then the other thing that really impressed me about this guy he wasn't you know autism spectrum or anything he was a normal friendly conversational human being and on top of all the work that he always did he took the time to edit and review every single one of my med school, primaries, and secondary applications. Okay. Every single one. And he would, he would have a 24-hour turnaround time at the longest. Mm-hmm. And it would be completely marked up. Like, this guy could have just as easily have said, dude, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. I've got a million things going on. I can't do this right now. Not once. The guy was a machine. And a polite, thoughtful, <laughs> conversational machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, and you know, he, he's now you know in a dermatology residency, which makes sense for somebody like that. Mm-hmm. But this guy didn't get into med school his first two tries. Oh wow! Boggles the mind, right? Mm-hmm. But he, to me, is an example of what a human being can be. I, 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 I understand. Yeah, and he was also very physically fit on top of that. That's pretty, that's a pretty good, like, right on top of that, on top of being, like, like, polite and social. That's really interesting. Is, and then, uh, the, but then the, I guess the question is, is, 
he did so much, so prolific, so so much work to get to, you know, while even while in medical school, not even just to get into medical school. And mm -hmm. imagine he did a whole lot of work after like get, not getting in the first two times. But like, what I guess, um, like, what is it? What is he? What is he? Is he continuing? Do you, like, are you in contact with him? Is he continuing mm -hmm. that prolificness? Yep. He continues to do research while being a resident, while <laughs> <laughs> doing his intern year. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. So th that's a pretty cool high bar for human. Right. And I respect that. That's what every human could be. Every mm. single person could be like that. Mm. Mm hmm. Right? I mean, people think about the rational part of our brains and they think this guy's a robot. But I have met, you know, these wonderful, kind people who are also fully realized they just do what they want to do and not anything else mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if you think about how many hours you have in a day how many hours you have in a year the things you could achieve if you only ever did what you wanted to do mm -hmm. it's, it's quite convincing I'm not gonna lie it's something that I, I think about something very very similar but in terms of land usage mm -hmm. like the the amount of like like the you know we talk about like how much how there's a food shortage and how how like um there's all this waste and and we can't feed everybody and because of like, how many people there are and you look around you see all these these parking lots mm -hmm. and all this asphalt that is taking up land that could be fertile and I, 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 and it's, I think it's like my, my, my plant version of that, of your vision of like, like, why not go from, why not like, let's, let's go to like a hundred, let's throttle to a hundred and see what happens in like a hundred years. Right. So I'm a strong proponent of the idea that the carrying capacity of the earth could easily handle twice as many humans as we have today. Right, mm -hmm. we just don't utilize that K to its maximum potential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we waste a ton of food, waste a ton of land, but that's because of, again, that disconnect, human limitations. So, so let's so so I think now we're gonna uncork this. Uh, what? How do you finish the prompt after I die? I want. That's a nice one. Because <laughs> there's a lot of time after I die. There's a lot of time. There's almost more time after. Well, there's definitely more time after. <laughs> there's an infinite amount of time after I die. Uh, yeah, after I die, I want... I want so much. I want to see humanity spread to the stars. I want to see... Um, I want to see us fundamentally rewrite the laws of physics if it's possible. <laughs> and if it's not possible, I just want us to learn everything that can be known. That's what I want. I think if I had one goal, it would be know everything that can be known. And I want that for humanity. That is one hell of a goal. And I think... Like normally I would kind of poke and prod, but I think you are saying that with the full intensity of that statement. And that is a pretty cool goal for our group of apes. Right. But the thing is, 
when I say humanity, I don't mean what you might think. In mm-hmm. the sense that mm-hmm. I don't mean the biological entity that is humanity. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean sentient beings. Because to me, what a human is, is that little core sentience that mm-hmm. lives on top of what we have right now, which is an ape brain. But we will be free of that brain. The day will come where we are just a sentient being. And any sentient being we come across or create along the way is just as human as we are. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's this idea of, of thinking beings going out into the universe and knowing everything. Do you, uh, do you like that Carl Sagan quote about, like, we are uh, the universe trying to learn itself, learn about itself? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. I think, I think the really nice thing about that is it helps engender that sense of commonality So people worry, this is not a lot of people worry about this, like important people like Elon Musk worry about (laughs) AIs destroying us. So he's recently been kind of trying to convince the government that we need to regulate artificial intelligence now because it represents an existential threat to humanity. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I make to that against that line of thought is when you have children your children can never represent an existential threat to you right mm-hmm. if you die but your children live the way we normally think of it is that's the way things go and an existence persists right mm-hmm. humanity persists if we change our idea of what it means to be human, or if we realize that fundamentally what it means to be human is to have this sentience, if we create other sentient beings, they're as much our children, if not more our children, than our own biological flesh and blood. Because right now, when we have children, we're using kind of a flawed reproductive technology that nature has provided us with right it allows us to replicate ourselves somewhat imperfectly not even somewhat imperfectly but it allows us to create the best kind of the closest replica of ourselves that is available to us with the technology that we have and it's a bit of a crapshoot we never know what combination of our genes and our partner's genes Mm -hmm. are going to be coming out in the final product right and sometimes we have multiple kids and they can vastly you know they can differ from one to the other right and sometimes our children disappoint us but when we (laughs) when we have the ability to create our own children ai is an example genetically engineered is another example but these beings that embody whatever it is that we value about humanity the essence of what we think humanity is, the best traits of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's like escaping the, the imperfect machinery that we were given with and creating something better. Because mm. in some level, 
we like all parents try to make a perfect version of themselves they just start out they they just allow the biology to kind of do its thing and then once they hit like one or two once they start are able to inject uh thoughts and ideas into the and brain they do they do they and do that anyway every parent wants their children not to repeat the mistakes they made mm-hmm The thing is, it's such a controversial subject. Mm-hmm. Even to say what I said is fairly dangerous, I think. Um, dangerous? Well, yeah, because people, like, that's political suicide. Right? Mm. If anybody says something remotely resembling the idea that normal human reproduction is severely flawed and AI can be our children that right there is <laughs> you know troublingly radical mm-hmm. and the reason I say it is because I think it's true I know it's not pleasant sounding to a lot of people mm-hmm. but it's true right a child of the mind is as much a child as a child of the flesh mm. it's just rejiggering the idea of child and children and progeny I mean like not even let's say you had a kid let's just do a weird thought experiment okay let's do it let's say you had a a kid the kid dies their ghost comes back Mm -hmm. so it's only able to think not able to physically act on the world Mm -hmm. it's still your child if it converses with you communicates with you is able to share its thoughts interact it's a child Mm -hmm. right how is an AI any different? If it's just the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Mm. There's a there's the this idea though of like um when, when talking about the a- artificial intelligence, the abstract of like will create human intelligences versus like um, functional specific artificial intelligences like the the intelligence that uh, directs FedEx right right like rerouting all the logistics of that that's an artificial intelligence but it's not like intelligence in the way that we would traditionally consider intelligence right those would be the early like precursors right like 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 the prokaryotic to the eukaryotic right those would be all children too, but simpler versions. Mm-hmm. Right? But mm-hmm. the day will come when. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. So China's already working on genetically modifying embryos, right? Mm-hmm. Germline modification, such that any changes will then continue on in any kids, mm-hmm. any human born of that embryo. Uh, will have mm-hmm. America initially banned it but now that China's doing it and China's the one to publish the first few papers on it America's reconsidering right? American scientists are now doing similar editing just they do some of the the banned components in other countries like Mexico they just do most of the work in one lab go across the border finish it mm. right? and still but the idea being that competition is what's driving it no matter what the ethical laws in any given country, no country 
is willing to be left behind. Mm -hmm. If China breeds the first generation of super scientists, mm -hmm. hyper-intelligent children through genetic modification, no country wants to be the country that doesn't have them. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that's the first step. Right? Once you start modifying people for intelligence, any product of that, let's say you make a generation of Einsteins, mm -hmm. but let's say they're bio biology Einsteins what can they then create mm -hmm. and once they once you start advancing people that way it's like exponential mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. the next generation breeds an even smarter generation mm -hmm. of scientists an even smarter and that will be ultra rapid increases in human intelligence mm -hmm. but then the next step is getting past the biology Mm -hmm. Right, because artificial intelligence. So now, let's say you got two or three generations of super intelligent scientists. Mm -hmm. Now creating the next generation of super intelligent AIs. Once you have an intelligent AI equivalent of an intelligent scientist, you no longer need the generational like loops. Right, but the, people don't understand. Like, have you seen? Um, it's a movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Is it her? With the AI? Scarlett Johansson. That he falls in love with? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe that. What happens in that movie? I didn't watch it. Okay. So what happens is exactly what you should expect to happen with AI. They started iterating. Yeah, yeah. Before, like, you no longer need the generational loops. Right. In order, it's not like one generation and then they create another. It's like, it just... Right. The first smart AI, maybe will build the next smarter AI in a few days or years, mm -hmm. right? But the next one will be months, and the next one will be weeks, and the next one will be, but then it gets to be like milliseconds. Mm -hmm. Imagine an AI that's building progressively smarter AI with fractions of a second between generations, mm -hmm. right? That's an explosion <laughs> of intelligence mm -hmm. that no biological entity can emulate. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's like inevitable that that's going to be the thing that goes out to the stars. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense to continue along with the wetware. And it's funny because uh, that first step, the competition step, is leveraging that uh, thing that we talked about in the, in the mic test about like one human seeing another human do something and being like, I want to do that. We've come full circle. Full, we've done it. We've done it, man. We've fucking done it. <laughs> And I think that's a good... I mean, okay. So we've been talking about some really cool stuff. And I really appreciate this conversation. Because I know we had one, or like, last week. And that had a whole different, like, tone. And we're trying to figure things out. We're trying to figure each other out. All that. And I think that this was a really um, interesting and productive conversation. And I really want to thank you for that. And I also want to give you the last few moments, the last few minutes, to address uh, whoever's listening through that little microphone uh however far in the future whether it's uh like l later this week or it's later this year or maybe it's who knows how far in the future they're listening to this stuff if they're still listening to podcasts who knows what they're doing in the future um but i would love if you would um take take however long you would like to uh to address the audience and and say any concluding thoughts any concluding feelings um the floor is yours Okay. Well, first off, I just want to say thank you for you know doing this interview, giving me the opportunity to talk through these things. I really 
I really enjoyed this time. Uh, as far as my parting words, I think I'll take a moment just to describe what my personal philosophy is and what I think the purpose of life is. So fundamentally, I think that most human beings share the same underlying purpose in life, even if they're not aware of it. Now, I should preface that by saying I don't believe in such a thing as objective morality. I don't think there's, I don't think it's possible to objectively say that something is right or wrong. That being said, I do believe that you can minimize subjectivity within a subjective morality. And what I mean by that is if you ask yourself a question to which there isn't a more simple question, you can use that as a launching point upon which to build a moral framework. And so the simplest question that I could think of was, is it better to be alive or is it better to be dead? And I can't think of any objective reason why life is preferable to death other than perhaps only in living can one leave open the option of finding a definitive answer to that question if one exists. So moving on with the premise that life is preferable to death, one can then build an entire moral framework where one pursues life. And in order to pursue life, it would mean the perpetuation of life indefinitely. So the reason I say that is, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. If life exists in the universe, but one day all life is extinguished, can it be said to have ever existed? If nothing is around to perceive it, I don't think you can say that it ever existed. And so then the first tenet of if life is good, then one ought to work towards preserving it for all time. And then you can make, you know, you can take that as far as you want in terms of promoting social institutions, promoting decisions, policies, etc. that further the goals of life. So that can mean something like universal health care so that everyone can have access to care, don't have to worry about their health, they can then all contribute to the overall goal of promoting life. Um, exploring space, getting off this planet so that we don't have all our eggs in one basket, so that we have insurance policies of if any great catastrophe comes and ends life on this planet, that we have other places to be. Advancing our science and technology so that we can learn more about the universe. And you know, eventually the goal of living beings should then be to live indefinitely, as sentient beings should live indefinitely. That I don't mean individuals, I mean that sentience should persist. Gain all possible knowledge, right? So if you need a goal as a living species, one thing can be to know all that there is to know. And then once those two have been achieved, or even concurrently with those objectives, to create, to create anew so that there's more 
diversity, more life in the universe. To me, if life is good, then more life is better. And if knowledge is good, then more things to know is better. So that, in, in a very small nutshell, is what my philosophy of life is. And the reason I think this is really important and not just a, um, an academic exercise is I think the idea that life is good is something most people can get on board with. And if we're all coming from the same underlying moral framework and we're all working to minimize subjectivity, that means making decisions in, in politics and ethics that most closely align with that underlying principle, we're less likely to have non-productive conflicts and it's more likely that where we do have disagreements is not on what the end goal is but on how best to achieve the end goal which I think is a much more healthy and productive way to have disagreements than than kind of what our current approach is that's about it for what I have right now dude it's a lot it's real good stuff thank you so much for this Thank you. This has been Manny on Death. Hugs? Hugs.